The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. The Book of Esther. The story that we are about to walk through is filled with pain, with drama, and yet it's told loaded with humor. Today, Jews still celebrate the story of Esther. It's in the Feast of Purim, Purim, which a pur in Hebrew is a lot. And one of the backdrops to this story is that the Lord is the one who controls So the lot is cast, but the Lord is the one who controls its outcome. So a lot is a poor, and the feast of Purim is the celebration of the time when God delivered in an amazing way the Jews from the lot of Haman. Haman, the Agagite, is the villain. And as the Jews read this story... At the Feast of Purim, year by year, they dressed in costumes. They anticipate uh, with great anticipation. They they just anticipated in great ways. Uh, it's It's a fun time of recalling that our God is big. That God is the one who conquers enemies. And every time that the villain's name shows up, all of the crowd, as they're walking through the story says, boo. Boo! Bad Haman. So feel free, as we go through the story today, to um, let your exertion of God's faithfulness give rise to boos of joy, because the enemy has been defeated, and that is worth celebrating. We are in the part of the Old Testament, book by book, that is reveling in the kingdom promises, in God's faithfulness, and this book is no different. So we're coming off of the book of Daniel, where God has been exalted over all. He is the sovereign over the present, He is sovereign over the future, and His kingdom is going to come and stand and last forever. It will be established through the Messiah. That is the hope that shapes the backdrop to the book of Esther. So, with Bibles open, we are going to walk through this story, the ten ten chapters, point by point. We have the setting for the providential preservation of God's people, the nature of the providential preservation of God's people and the celebration of the providential preservation of God's people. The main point of the book is the providential preservation of God's people. And it's worth celebrating because if they had been destroyed, not only in Susa, the capital of Persia, but extended from India to Ethiopia, which was the kingdom of Persia, and the declaration had been made that all the Jews would be destroyed, there would be no Messiah. But God was at work, intruding, saving. So, we're going to walk through, after the setting is established, we'll walk through 
What does it look like that he providentially preserves his people? The plot against the king and the Jews. Esther's bravely, Esther's brave intercession, the king's reward and execution of the villain. And then the celebration when the enemies are put down and the Feast of Purim is set up. This is called a book, the the book is called Esther in traditional Jewish circles. But as I think you will see, uh, it is more a book of Mordecai. Esther is the instrument that moves Mordecai to the top of all. But ultimately, it's actually not a book of Esther or Mordecai. It is the book of the divine mover who is never mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned by name or by title. And yet we will see that he is at work in amazing ways. So we begin with the setting. A king with only apparent authority. We're told in verse 1, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, that is, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and all of his servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors and the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many Many days, 180 of them. So gathered into his capital, from India to Ethiopia, are the peoples from all over the world, all the leaders are gathered to see the greatness of Ahasuerus. And he walks them through and shows them his white cotton curtains, his violent his violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, purple to silver, rods and marble pillars, his couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, whatever that is, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones, drinks were served in golden vessels, it gets better and better. This man has power. He is awesome. He is great. And all the readers know it. So they celebrate. Well, he's kind of great. He kind of has power. Because what comes next casts a shadow on his rulership. And it is not good. Right in the midst of the festival, he decides, I know, my wife is beautiful. And I want the kings to revel in her beauty. Vashti... Come now and dance, and Vashti will not move. She will not flaunt her beauty. We don't know exactly whether she's supposed to be naked, but this is a low view of women. He wants to objectify his wife, and she refuses to be objectified. So, we... Read. Verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. Well, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? 
because she has not performed the command of the king. Then the great wise man said in the presence of the king and of all the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of Ahasuerus. Why? Why has it been an offense against all? Not only because they are present, but because if word gets out that Vashti has refused the king, that no wife in all the land will be willing to listen to her husband and the kingdom will crumble. We wouldn't want that to happen. So, this is what we propose. Get rid of her. Verse 19, If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Now, just keep it in your mind. It only shows up that phrase one other time in all the Bible. It happens in 1 Samuel 15 when we're told that God is going to give the kingdom, replace, take it from Saul, and give it to his neighbor who is better than him. 1 Samuel 15, 28. Just keep that in mind for later this morning. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is a vast kingdom, then all the women will give honor to their husbands. That is, they will treat their husbands as valuable, high and low alike. And this pleased the king. So Vashti is put down and days pass. Ahasuerus is great, but he is weak. He has a type of authority, but it's not full authority. He can't even rule his own home. It's out of control. And we're supposed to see a level of humor in this. By chance, the queen's throne is empty, and it needs to be filled. So, get a queen. After these things, when the anger of Ahasuerus was abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the, queen, the king's young men who attended him said, I've got an idea. There's lots of beautiful women out here. Pick a new bride who will listen to you. Good idea. So out went the wise men and made the decree, the king is going to have a beauty festival. And your girl might get picked as queen. Now, in comes some main characters. We read in verse two, chapter 2, verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Only one other of those mentioned in all the Bible. His name was Saul. He was a son of Kish, a Benjamite. 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2. A new son of Kish has arisen. Now we read where we're to place this story in time. Verse 6. This Benjamite had been carried away 
Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away when Jeconiah, king of Judah, that's Jehoiachin, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah. So this is right in the midst of exile. Israel is in the midst of their curse. That's when the king had carried away Jehoiachin, and with that, Kish, Mordecai's father. So Mordecai grew up in exile, and he's been raising, it says in verse 7, Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So Esther is his younger cousin, and Mordecai has been acting as surrogate father for this girl. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. The level of King Ahasuerus' emptiness is revealed by the fact that all that drives him is outward form. The mention of her physical appearance is designed to set us up for how she's going to be acquired. The Persian Empire is built on shallowness, though it is very wide. It's only an inch deep. The king is not ultimately in control, yet he acts like he is. Who is in control? There's a Mordecai, a Jew and his younger cousin, Esther. And Esther gets taken into the beauty system. She's now going to live at the king's palace or his commune, and Esther grows in favor. Her beauty is significant to the head who's overseeing all the women. They have to go through days and days and days and days of beauty treatments, um, I don't know what that entails exactly. They're going to smell good, they're going to look good, and there's probably exercise involved, and they're getting conditioned for their night with the king. And that night comes. So, God is not mentioned. It just so happens that Esther gets picked And then, lucky her, she gets brought into the night with the king, and she pleases him. But Esther had a secret. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. She looked like any other Semite. Dark complexion, darker complexion often darker hair. She just fits in. She knows the language of the people, so Hebrew is not giving her over, and she's not telling anyone she's a Jew. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Here is a man who's cared about, who cares deeply about this woman. He will not let her go. He is loving her like a father, even though she's now been separated and is outside of his authority at one level. He is intentional and present. 
So Esther's turn came. She goes before the king. And verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as her own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except that Haggai, the king's eunuch, uh, she, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, demanded. Um, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king, into his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther. And she becomes the queen. So now we have a Jewish queen that no one knows as a Jew. The kingdom is restored to order. There's the king and his wife who listens to him. Or whom we will see he listens to over and over again. We enter into the thrust of the story. But notice that had Vashti not refused to be objectified, there'd be no need for Esther. And without Esther, there would be no plot. A plot that is now created because Mordecai is faithfully standing at the door, still at the gate of the king, continuing to serve and to listen and ensure that Esther is okay, day by day by day. And up comes in the ranks the villain, whose name was Haman. Very good. So, Um, so the question is, what happens to all the women who have had one night with the king? Um, I'm not a master of Persian law, but um, what I recall, um, in the situation of David's son, Uh, what was his son's name? Not Absalom. The son... Oh, maybe it was Absalom. Nah. Anyway, to, who? Uh, what's the girl's name? Tamar and... Is it Tamar and Absalom? Sorry. Anyway, she gets violated by her husband. By this man who could have been her husband... So what could have been a, a love-endearing act turns into being viewed as rape. And she is forced to live out her days celibate in the king's palace without husband and simply being cared for, but without the protection of a husband. And the, the sense I get is that very well could have been his exploitation of these women turns into a lifelong extension of their never being to enjoy, being able to enjoy families. Very possible. So, the 
the encounter that the king has with Esther, I mean, I think it's, I mean, we're just supposed to read it as exploitation, as sin, as wrong. He's doing it night after night with different women. We're not supposed to say this is okay or God thinks it's okay. Mordecai, it, it most likely would mean he, he's having to trust his God. It either means if he rejects letting her go, she will be taken anyway, and he will be killed, and she will have no more care. So he leaves her and he entrusts her into the hands of his God, even though God's not mentioned, and he is looking to see how the Lord is go, what, what's going to happen. I think we're, we're just, the, the story isn't, de, isn't uh, unpacking the ethics, it's just walking us through what happened. Now, before Haman even rises, Mordecai is at the gate, and he overhears a conspiracy to assassinate the king. It just happens that he overhears it. Just by chance, he's in the right place at the right time, and the perpetrators are put down, the king is saved, it's put into the annals, and just by chance, Mordecai is not rewarded. Time passes, people forget, Haman rises to power. Very good. So, we enter into this plot. Now, notice what he is called. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. The Agagite, that little term, shows up next to the villain's name many times. I think four times in this book. Just keep that in mind. There's only one other... Well, we hear about an Agag in Numbers 24, and then he goes public in 1 Samuel 15. Agag is the king of the Amalekites that Saul refuses to kill. What are the, who saw, and Saul is the other son of Kish. So what's going on here? Why is, there, there seems to be some kind of intentionality that it's not just... Why do, you, why do we need to know that he's the son of Kish? Why do we need to know that Mordecai is a Benjamite? Why do we need to know that this is Haman, the Agagite? Don't give up. Keep going. Now, all the king's servants, as Haman would pass, would bow down, it says in verse 2 of chapter 3. They'd pay homage to Haman. For the king commanded, had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai went against the king's command and refused to bow to Haman. And Haman didn't like it. Anger arose in his soul. He found out that Mordecai was a Jew. And then he set out to make a declaration, we will kill all the Jews. Verse 8 there is a certain people, he says to the king, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. Now, that's not true. But Mordecai did refuse to bow down to Haman. There's at least one that was not being kept. They do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Now look at verse 7. 
because I jumped into his discussion with the king. But it says in verse 7, In the first month, which is the first month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they, that is Mordecai and his buddies, not Mordecai, Haman and his buddies, cast the poor. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So they're playing a game trying to figure out, ultimately we will find, when will the Jews be destroyed? And it's all by chance. So he sets it up with the king, and the king took his signet ring and gave Haman the Agagite permission to put his decree into effect. And from India to Ethiopia, the decree went forth. Letters were sent by courier, verse 13, to all the king's provinces, that would include Judea, with the instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This is a Hitler-like attempt to annihilate the Jewish people, and with that, messianic hope. He doesn't recognize, as a Gentile, that he is in attempting to do this, cutting off the only hope for Gentile salvation. He, standing as an enemy of God, is putting a stamp that he and all others in the world will remain enemies of God. In rebelling against God, he is hurting himself. Into this context, the queen rises. Esther bravely intercedes with ha- while Haman plots. The counteroffense is initiated. Word comes to Mordecai that Haman is working his decree. The word has gone forth, and Mordecai uh, uh, sets up in a meeting uh, through the couriers to get word to Esther. When Mordecai learned of the plot, chapter 4, verse 1, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, And in every province where the king's command and decree went forth, Jews were fasting and weeping and lamenting. Esther and Mordecai connect. Verse 13, Mordecai told Esther this, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape. Even as the queen, you too will be put to death. All Jews will be executed. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance, I tell you, will rise for the Jews from another place. Why? Because God is faithful to His promises. He is committed to raise up the Jews because through the Jews will come the King through whom all the world will be blessed. 
I am confident of this. God will raise up deliverance for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house, Esther, will perish. And who knows? Who knows? Whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There is a a hint there of clear, a deep sense of providence. He's not walking by chance. He's living, Mordecai, by a deep sense of conviction that there is something more overseeing the world than he can put his hands around. There is a greater power on the throne than even King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, depending on what translation you have. There's a greater power on the throne. Maybe in this mysterious providence, this experience that we are undergoing, and your being on the throne is indeed intended for such a time as this. Esther is young, and yet she hears Mordecai's words, and this young girl Walks in wisdom. Verse 15. So Esther replied to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Come what may, my God will save us. And if He doesn't, we will still not bow down. If I perish, I perish. I will enter into the throne room wherein I'm not supposed to go unless I'm bidden. I will enter into the throne room and see what happens. If the king gives me favor, then I'll make the plea. But come what may, I'm going to act. But between now and then, for the next three days, fast on my behalf. I mean, it's, it's intriguing. It's not fast and pray. The author is going out of his way. I mean, but, but you and I are supposed to say, not eating on behalf of her? Are they just honoring her by, fail, by not eating? No, they are interceding on her behalf, and yet they are, the, the author is intentionally, intentionally trying to let us know how much it seemed God was distant in these days. He's not, gonna, he's not even going to write him in, and yet we're supposed to feel his presence, recognize him as the great mover, and the conviction that was represented in these words by Mordecai, is to be penetrating our soul. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And I know that deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. As God is my witness, He's already put Himself on the line. He's declared it will be. And so, with the same faith of Abraham, through Isaac will your offspring be reckoned. Therefore, I go up and sacrifice my son, confident in the resurrection. So too, I am confident that deliverance will rise because God will not let everyone be annihilated. A remnant will be preserved. I am confident of this. The question is, do you want to be a part of it? Yeah. Oh. 
the, the agency is certainly clear. But the use of God's agents is also everywhere else in Scripture. What's not else in Scripture, elsewhere in Scripture, is the absence of His presence. The absence of His name. The fact that He's not a character in the story. Um, the, there may be a sense, a heightened sense of human responsibility being put within the book. Um, but the, there, there's, I, I think there's something going on that the main thrust of the book is not to give guidance to people about who they're supposed to be, but to give comfort to people in who their God is. That, that he is the one who was acting and moving at every stage. But certainly, using agents... Certainly, certainly agency is part of this. Um, but if I open up the newspaper today, I don't see God there in the article on the TV. I don't hear God's name. But I do know a lot of behind the scenes on some of the stories, and God is there. Yes. So, so, uh, yeah. When we when we get to when we get to the end of the story, and I walk through what I just trying to synthesize what I think is the message. Um, every act in this book is a testimony to divine sovereignty and faithfulness, and every act in the book is a testimony to the choices that people are making which God is ultimately guiding. But some who are making choices are enemies of God, and some making choices are um, his friends on his side. Could there be any possible link to a current situation where we have missionary friends in various very dangerous countries, and they are very careful about the direct references to God I mean, is there any sense in which to preserve the story, the writer didn't offer that direct connection? Could it, could it be a safety and preservation of the, of the story, or is that not? Part oh, that—that's a—it's a profound thought. That, um, in light of the context wherein the story was written, that um, the oppression against the Jews was so great. I mean, Esther didn't feel comfortable sharing her own identity. That's built into the story. That the story took its shape in a context where all they could say is fast. She couldn't say pray because she would be pushed to declare what God she was praying to. And any God other than the Persian God could be looked that as um, antagonism, insurrection, animosity. And so the story itself could be being written in light of the context just as it arose, that there was this type of non-religious freedom. And yet then the story takes on a form through the ages of in, an, in, a, in a context where God was not, the God of the, the true God was not being allowed to work he was the one guiding everything. It's a, it's a profound and 
it seems very legitimate to me that that could be very much what's happening. Okay, so Esther takes her step, and then the she says she's going to talk to the king. She gets to go in, he gives her favor, she raises his scepter, and she, uh, he says, I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. Their marriage is not like mine. I mean, I, I've never said to my wife, if you do something, I'll give you half my kingdom. It's already hers. But so it's um, somehow we're able to just you know live together without a sense of well, this is mine, this is yours, um, and and yet it's not the case here. He's the king, she's a puppet queen, and yet all of a sudden he says, "I'll give you up to half my kingdom," and she lays a hook. What I'm asking is that you and Haman come to my house for a feast. And he likes the idea, and so they come. Esther gets this banquet together, and, I mean, it, he, the request is made, the feast is already being prepared, they show up, they eat, and the moment comes in verse 6, right away, and as they were drinking, the king says to Esther, what do you wish? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Second time he says this. Then Esther answered, my wish and request is, we're expecting something more, and they heighten the drama. My request is that you come back tomorrow night for another feast. What do you think? Oh, Now, what this does is it sets a stage. It sets the stage for the king to go to bed, happy, but torn up inside. He can't sleep. So he asks his, um, one of his helpers to come in and read to him the great chronicles of King Ahasuerus, who reigns from India to Ethiopia. And in the process, who knows how much time has passed, but he reads the story of Mordecai's deliverance of the assassination attempt. And he says, hmm, I mean, by chance, he hadn't rewarded him. So at this moment, at such a time as this, he thinks, has anything ever been done to Mordecai for what he blessed me with, saving my life? No, king, nothing's ever happened to him. Huh, good to know. Now at the same time, Haman goes home, and he's just thrilled the queen is on my side, and I hate Mordecai, and he doesn't know that they're cousins, and... Um, but we do, and so he's like, what should I do? And the queen says, go for it. And he says, great, I'll have a gallows built 50 meters, cubits, feet, something, really high, right in my front yard. I'll build the gallows up high, and that's where I will kill Haman. Now, the next morning happens, and the king has woken up, and he's eating his crumpet and his tea, and Haman comes in. Haman comes in. Thank you. And, and the king says, Haman, tell me, what should I do for the man that I want to honor? Now the villain is all about himself. He's all about exalting himself over others. The king has objectified others. Haman has treated himself as higher and all others as put down. If they don't recognize his greatness, he will punish them and all who are connected to him. Them and all who are connected to them. So all the Jews are going to be put down. He has a very low view of humanity. 
and a very high view of himself. He wants to see himself honored. So the drama has been extended, the gallows have been erected, and we now get an unexpected humiliation. Enter in Haman. Who? What should be done for the person that I want to honor? Oh, king, you should put him on your own horse, dress him in your own robes, send him through the city, and people can declare, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What do you think, king? Do you like that one? Everybody will look at me. And the king says, great, go do it to Mordecai. What? Not only that, you lead him. Walk the horse, walk the steed, and let the world look at Mordecai. An unexpected humiliation. Now, at the end of the day, verse 14, while they were yet talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So, Haman is actually talking to his wife. He can't believe the humiliation that he's just undergone. And while he's there, the courier shows up and says, Hey, you're tardy. The taxi's outside. You've got to get to the feast. So all of this, I mean, the drama, it was like it just stretched it out for us. And now we come to the second feast. Unexpected honor. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther And the king, happy of heart, says, What is it that you wish, Queen Esther? Don't hold me any longer, even up to half my kingdom. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, what? She finally gets it out. Let it be, let my life be granted. Let my my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this Wicked Haman. Now the king is irate. He gets up. He can't believe it. He storms out of the room and goes out into his garden. Haman freaks. He stumbles. He falls into the lap of the queen. Or he falls. That's all it just says. He fell into the lap of the queen just as the king was coming in. Will you try to kill my queen and before that have your way with her? To death with you. So, the unexpected humiliation was Haman's. The unexpected honor was Haman's. He wanted to be lifted up? I will lift you up. On the very gallows that he intended for Mordecai, who is going to take his own post... Those gallows become the end for Haman. So we read in 
7-7, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and we already covered that part, hang him on the gallows. They're 50 cubits high, so they hanged Haman on the gallows, verse 10, that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king was abated. Celebration. The celebration of the providential preservation of God's people. So we had the setting of the providential preservation of God's people, the nature of the providential preservation of God's people, and now the celebration. Haman is but put down. Haman has been put down. And then we have the elevation of Mordecai. So here's how it works. The king took off his signet ring, verse 2, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of the villain. Now, the villain still has a family. And what happens in the rest of chapter 8 is that a new counter-decree is established. Once a single decree is put in motion, it can't be uh, replaced. So the decree is still in motion that on this 12th month, on the 12th day, or 13th day, the Jews will be annihilated. So the king puts up, well, so Mordecai, now having Haman's right-hand man position, and Esther being queen, come to the king and say, will you create a new decree? And he says, as you wish. Write it as you will. So now Mordecai, operating under the authority of the king, writes a decree that declares that the that the Jews in all provinces from India to Ethiopia have the freedom to preserve themselves, to fight, indeed to strike and kill any enemy that would oppress them. And so the decree, the, the encouragement becomes decree and it goes forth throughout the land. With this word, the Jews rejoice. They rejoice in Susa. They rejoice throughout all the empire. And now we read of the great reversal. 9, 1 through 19. So on the twelfth month, which is, Adar of the, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred and the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Within the city of Susa alone, 500 people were killed. The king looks at this slaughter affirmingly because it means his wife has been preserved. Her people have been preserved. And he says, if this big of a battle has taken place and the Jews have succeeded, what's happened throughout all the rest of the empire? And then Mordecai and Esther say, the enemy is still here. Will you allow us to do the same the next day? And so the decree goes forth, and how they ever reached Persia, the word gets all the way to India in a single day, all the way to Ethiopia in a single day, I'm not certain. But the word goes forth, and they're allowed to fight again the next day. And now we come to the end. Verse 20, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. We can't let this 
experience of providential preservation go without a celebration. And it's not just a celebration today. The people are feasting, delighting. This is not a time to fast. This is a time to celebrate. We have been saved. And so we put in motion a declaration that actually becomes binding on the Jews in perpetuity that they would year after year on the 14th and 15th days of the 12th month, not the day of the slaughter, but the day of the preservation, that the day following the preservation, that they would celebrate this great preservation and they would call the celebration Purim. It's the only um, feast celebrated in Old Testament days that was not originally growing out of the Pentateuch. So it's added here in the book of Esther. The only additional feast comes in the intertestamental period when God uh, preserves the temple and gives it back to the Jews and they establish Hanukkah. And we read about Hanukkah in the New Testament as well. But those that all the feasts then that Jews celebrate are packaged right in that context. So they command to keep Purim. Here is some modern Jews. What, what is the point? Look at verse 22. I want you to keep this day as the days on which, and in order to recall, celebrate, remember, the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, And gifts to the poor. Why gifts to the poor? To remember that we were beggars. We we were bringing nothing to the table. And all of a sudden, God intruded and captured us and provided for us when we were helpless and hopeless. So remind yourselves, have a day set aside, not just to celebrate, but to be mindful of others' neediness. And then the end of the book, King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and of his might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought them sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. Three points that I think are helpful for us to take from this amazing story. Number one, God's providential care is mysterious but real. You might not feel that God is close. You might not understand all that is going on. But this book is testifying that God is indeed in charge. By chance, the orphan became queen. By chance, Mordecai overheard the plot to assassinate the king and saved him. Haman relies on chance to determine when best to destroy the Jews, but the same timing ends up being Haman's exec- uh, sorry, their exaltation. By chance, the king gave favor to Esther, which opened the door for her invitation to the feasts. 
By chance, the king read in his royal chronicles of Mordecai and decided to honor him. Ironically, Haman's passion to exalt himself resulted in Mordecai's exaltation. Ironically, Haman's plot to hang Mordecai resulted in his own hanging on the same gallows. Ironically, the king placed Mordecai over Haman's estate with all his authority. God's providential care is mysterious, but it's real. There's mystery to why God is doing, granting, directing what he's doing. I can't answer it. There is mystery involved. There's secret. And he has not disclosed all that he is up to to me, to you. It gets hard when we're in the middle of pain. This book, we've walked through those books. We've walked through Job. We've walked through Ecclesiastes. We've walked through the laments of the Psalter. We've walked through lamentations. This book is stepping back. It's not, I mean, it tells the story of darkness, but it's, it's on the flip side. And it's looking back and saying, God was in charge. If you find yourself in the darkness, be confident. He's in charge, and, and we're now able to celebrate. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. That is recalling what God's done in the past. This is a book that is leading people in thanksgiving to turn from anxiety into peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding that God promises to those who pray and remember. This is a book of hope. God's providential care is mysterious, but real. Paul? Right, right. All this, God was gracious to do what He did. God's graciousness is mysterious but real. Yeah, that's so good. I think of Pastor John's sermon series that became the book, um, and I forget the name of it. The what is it? Yeah, the one about great sins. That God, God is purposeful even in ordaining a world where sin exists. It's through those very sins that brings about hope. That brings about the glory of salvation and redemption and the joy of freedom and mercy. That opens the door for light to look bright because the darkness was so dark. Number two, everything happens with God-ordained purpose. I think this book wants us to feel that. Ahasuerus stands as a foil to God who holds true sway in the universe. Ahasuerus reigns from India to Ethiopia, yet he's not even in charge of his own home. God reigns over everything and every step he's working. God was in charge of all, in charge of Vashti's removal, the choice of Esther as queen, Mordecai's discovery of the plot to kill the king, and his not being rewarded so that Haman could later be humiliated. Esther's receiving the gold scepter, the king's sleepless night in which he discovers that he had failed to honor Mordecai, the elevation of Esther and Mordecai so as to deliver the Jews, etc., etc. All of this we're supposed to see God's working. We can't, this is not a trite statement. This is not something small. He indeed is working for those who love Him, all things for good. 
This book is designed to heighten hope in his kingdom purposes, even for those of us living on the other side of the cross who are already enjoying the, cel- the, the victory of Jesus, yet not yet seeing that everything has been subjected to his, under his feet. This book can give us encouragement and deep hope. And finally, third thing, we should have hope in God's power and faithfulness. God will preserve his own to the end. If you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to such a time, come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then, as part of hoping in God's power and faithfulness, a confidence that God will curse all who curse his people. That's what it said in Genesis 12.3. The one who curses you, I will curse. He will thwart the works of the serpent. The offspring of the woman will rise and crush his skull. It will happen. Romans chapter 12. When someone does evil against you, don't respond evil to evil, but respond evil with good because vengeance is mine, I will repay. What motivates me in my brokenness, having others hurt me, what motivates me to give them good rather than to respond with evil is my confidence that God will indeed curse all who curse His people. That God knows evil and He will crush evil, every bit of it. Yahweh had declared war of judgment against the Amalekites. They were the first people when Israel came out of Egypt. Amalek was the people that tried to destroy Israel right away when they left Egypt in Exodus 17. And this is when Moses, as long as he had his arms up, they were winning, and when they dropped, they were losing. And God declared, my wrath will be on Amalek until they are utterly destroyed. That sets the context for Saul's mission. In 1 Samuel 15, he is the Benjamite, the son of Kish, who is called upon through his army to wipe out the Amalekites in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. But he doesn't do it. So Samuel ends up taking the sword and cutting down Agag, the king. Haman was an Agagite, and Mordecai a Benjamite and son of Kish. It's Mordecai who was the instrument of the Agagites' downfall, not only for his downfall, but for his ten sons, all of whom are hung on gallows after they were killed in humiliation. There is something behind the scenes working in Esther. Here at the end of the Old Testament, we've only got two more books to go. Ezra and Nehemiah, one book, and Chronicles. And then we're through Jesus' Bible. Walking through Story after story, message after message, the Amalekite problem has persisted. They are a picture of the serpent's hostile ways in the garden, thwarting God's kingdom purposes. And this book is, I think, part of what's designed, part of its design in the backdrop is to say Yahweh's war of judgment against all the enemies will come to fruition. The Agagites, indeed, are brought down. Paul? That's right. It's, it's, a, it's a reversal. The Benjamites from that point forward are the bad group. Not only from that point forward, all the way from the book of Judges, it was the Benjamites that were the Levite and the concubine situation where 
they raped his concubine through the night and then he cut her into 12 pieces and sent her out and it created a civil war in the land, all of the 12 tribes against Benjamin. And then the flag goes up. And in that context, the people are called worthless men in Gibeah. Gibeah is where it happened in Judges chapter 17 through 20. Gibeah is where Saul was born. He is Saul, um, Saul came from Gibeah, Gibeah of Saul, of Benjamin, a son of Kish. And this story is a testimony of God's great reversal, that he can take the his, a history that has been scathed with brokenness and turn it on its head. He can redeem even the people of Kish, the son of Kish, the Benjamites. The Lord is both power and faithful, and he will continue to be. It's in this context that another Benjamite named Saul gets transformed. God did it once, and he does it again in the New Testament. And I think it's intentional that Paul is called a Benjamite. He is Saul of Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin, in order to connect him and to show once again the great reversal of God's ways. Mm-hmm. Right? So is this an attempt to rehabilitate Saul? Yeah, I think it... Well, it's not to re- rehabilitate Saul, but to say that the people can be rehabilitated, that there can be a transformation in time, that, that in the book of Judges, it only took one generation. One generation of the parents not telling their children of the nature and works of God, and everything went south. And this is a testimony that even when mom and dad die... A surrogate father can have an influence on a girl's life that changes the entire course of history. That in one generation, faith in God can take all that baggage and, and see it reversed. That true repentance can bring real mercy. That real faithfulness can set new trajectories and new hopes and new futures. Oh, very good. So the giving, of the giving to the poor in the Feast of Purim is, an, is a built-in internal um, uh, reminder that they're not to be like Haman who's oppressing of others, but rather mindful of their own neediness and ready to pour out lavishly. This is kingdom hope. Kingdom hope is grounded in those who trust God to the end and are confident in his mysterious providence. May we be among them, even when our lives enter into darkness. God, help us now. Thank you for this book. We leave encouraged, hopeful, in your preservation of a people that gives hope that we too can be preserved. From this people, Jesus comes. And even within it, just a testimony of your reversal that past ancestry does not have to testify to our future in relation to you. A broken past can be cut off in this generation. Be honored now in Christ I pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.